If you want to take your Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16, as we continue to sneak up on the end of this book, looking at these final three verses, a fitting conclusion to what is a profound exposition and application of the gospel. And what else are we left to do but to ascribe unto Him all glory, honor, and praise as a result of thinking deeply about these things that God has done for us. And so these, these are the words Paul uses to conclude. Again, a, a, an appropriate word of praise to God for His gospel. Beginning in verse 25. Now to Him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began but now made manifest, and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations, according to the commandment of the everlasting God, for obedience to the faith. To God alone wise, be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. How many of you are familiar with the TV show, America's Funniest Videos. Familiar to you? All right. I mean, I would imagine over the course of the last 30 years, which is how long this TV show has been going, it's one of the longest running American TV shows. I imagine we've seen one or two, and and even beyond that, since everything these days is videoed in some form, this is just one, maybe the earliest and first expression, of what is untold opportunities for all of our foolishness to be on display, right? I mean, what is America's funniest videos but a very simple concept? Americans record themselves either on purpose doing stuff or record themselves trying to do something but something else happens instead, all right? And all of that sent in for the rest of us to enjoy, right? For the rest of us, in essence, to laugh at all of the dumb things we do. I mean, that's kind of what the show is, isn't it? And, and they, they, they have parts. And the parts that I find to be the most entertaining are those where people think they're doing something really cool, all right? Really adventurous. But you know from the get-go, this is a bad idea. So like the guy that's up on top of his roof and there's a trampoline below him, and then there's an above-ground pool next to that, right? That video. And well, unfortunately, that doesn't narrow it down. There's a lot of these guys out there that see this setup and think, yeah, this is a good idea. Till your belly flop is on the ground, right? Not such a great idea. How about the people that look at an object in front of them and think they can jump over it, right? So they back up. And we're talking... We're not talking like, you know, world-class athletes. We're talking about guys who look like me, all right? So backing up and thinking, yeah, I can jump over that shopping cart, all right? But no, we can't. Obviously, we can't. There's only one way this thing's going to end. It's going to end badly, unless you're the doctor on call, all right? Then you get paid. But otherwise, it ends badly for everybody else. In fact, they even have a segment that is entitled, What Were You Thinking? That's it, isn't it? That's what we think. And I wish I could say, I wish I could say that those videos are the 
the greatest examples of foolishness in our culture. I wish I could say those stand alone, right? As foolishness in our culture, but it doesn't. In fact, that phrase, what were you thinking? How many times have you uttered that, whether vocalized it or in your mind, because you saw some news story, you read something, you heard what somebody said, and you thought, what are you thinking? And then maybe in a real moment of confession, the person you look at in the mirror, you've probably said the same thing to him or her too, right? After some decision, usually a bad one, maybe the consequences falling down upon you, you look at yourself and you think, what were you thinking? I mean, I wish I could say that we live in a culture that's largely driven by wisdom. But it's not. And in fact, that is so true that whenever we see something that can be rightly identified as wise, we're all amazed by it, right? In other words, that should be videotaped. That's what we should be putting on TV when people do wise things, because that seems to be in short supply. Of course, there's a reason for that. It's because we're human. And wisdom is not something that naturally comes to us. And what I mean by that is... It, 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 is, it is something that maybe we display, but only by God's grace do we get that right. No, in general, we find ourselves struggling as a result of the curse, as a result of our own sin, struggling with the ease with which we can do really foolish things. Now, you may hear all this and think, all right, what does that have to do with anything you just read in those three verses? This morning, we do have good news because even though we live in a culture that's largely foolish and maybe even our own actions sometimes don't rise to the level of wisdom, we're not without hope. Because our text this morning does draw our attention to wisdom. Wisdom in its most important and ultimate form. Wisdom as it relates to God and His actions in the world. Now, if, if you weren't paying close attention, you may have missed it. Because it's only two words in the New King James. But this morning, this is what we turn our attention to. In light of living in what is largely an unwise and foolish world, it is good to know that we can trust in the wisdom of God. And so as Paul continues to flesh out this word of praise, that, that as we've said every week, simultaneously does two things. It describes unto God proper worship and praise of which He is worthy, and at the same time draws us back into the beauty and the, and the richness of what has been the book of Romans. Paul, in these three verses, is able to offer uh, a summation of sorts, allusions to the themes that he unpacked in all of those previous chapters. And so the book not, the, the book not only ends by giving us an appropriate word of praise, but does so by, again, unpacking for us these ideas. So this is what we've been doing. We've been walking our way through verses 25 through 27, that as Paul offers this word of praise to God, it also gives us an opportunity to reflect on important realities about God that really should then drive us to be a people who worship Him. Keeping in mind, this is the end of it all. This is the end game. This is the point. This is the climactic moment. God's design for his gospel ultimately ends with his glory. 
And so it's fitting then that we would then spend time reflecting on how all this is about him. All things draw us back to him. If we think rightly about God's word and when we think rightly about God's gospel, we will inevitably be brought back into thinking rightly about God himself. So here's what we've been looking. We've been looking at several realities. Now you'll notice I use the word several because this sermon series, this closing series of messages in Romans that we've now been in for a month, as I was developing this, I started off with four, all right? And, and now, by the time we're done, there's going to be six. And I think that's going to be it, because there's no more words in Romans, all right? So I think this is, about, this is bound to be it. There's going to be, I think, six points. Uh, God, God's not adding more to the book of Romans, uh, which you're going, whoo, all right, glad he doesn't do that, because we don't know. We'd be in Romans indefinitely. No, we are coming to an end But so far, we've looked at four of what I think are at least six realities illustrated in these closing words. We've talked about the centrality of God to Him, glory, reminding ourselves that while the gospel might be for us, it is not about us. We looked at the ministry of God. What has God done in the gospel? He's established us through the preaching of the gospel, through Christ crucified and resurrected. We looked at then the Word of God and how God has made this known by revealing this truth progressively over time, hidden as a mystery, veiled in types and shadows in the Old Testament until unveiled in its glory and splendor in Christ. This by the prophetic scriptures now made known to us. Then last week we looked at the command of God, that that last phrase, couple of phrases there in verse 26. Where Paul tells us all these things then are according to the commandment of the everlasting God, meaning his sovereign decree. It's it's something that he has proclaimed when it says his command. It's something that he has ordered. It is something that he has determined. So again, it is speaking of his sovereignty. With then that work being completed in us as we are brought to obedience to the faith. Well, let's look at at another one. Number five. I think the the fifth then reality of God that that comes to us directly from this text is the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God. Now, notice again, verse 27. Now, just just to set the, the appropriate context here, keep in mind, Paul has one primary phrase. It begins in verse 25, now to him... And then he goes on to talk about a bunch of stuff, all right? So I know this is grammar, but stick with me, all right? So now to him, and then he talks about all that him, God, is able to do. But then verse 27, he comes back around to that main phrase. Now to him, to who? To God, alone wise, be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. So, so Paul's now drawing us back in to what is his main point. And what is Paul's main point? Remember this from the very first week? He's making one statement that is so profound it doesn't even require a verb. Verb has to be supplied by translators. It's one phrase, three words in English. To him, glory. To him, glory. What is the appropriate response to the gospel that has been magnificently laid out for us in 16 chapters, 16 and 24 verses? To him, glory. It's a reminder then that all these things again are focused on him, but before 
before getting to that final phrase, which we will get to next week, he inserts here in verse 27, as what I think is another important point of clarification, one that I think is so important, we're going to spend all of our time on two words. Two words in the New King James. Verse 27, to God alone wise. Now I know what you may be thinking, two words. Looking at your watch, right? Wow, two words. How long could that take? The rest of the time. All right, I promise you, all right? You know, right? Some of you know that maybe two words doesn't necessarily give an indicator of the time involved. But I do think this is an essential quality about God that is, that is worthy of deeper reflection. Now, now again, the New King James puts it this way, to God alone wise. If you've got one of the other like three major translations, NIV, New American Standard, the ESV, it, uh, they all have the, the same phrase, to the only wise God. All right? So, to the only wise God, to God alone wise now, again, there's some nuance there and why the translators may would, would choose one or the other. I mean, functionally, it doesn't matter. We all get to the same place. What we do need to emphasize here, we do need to emphasize, one, what Paul is not saying with that phrase. To, to the only wise God, Paul is not saying, well, when it comes to all of the gods that are available to you, God's the only one that's wise. I mean, there would be no need to utter something such as that, right? So that, that's, not what, that's not what he's saying. When he says to the only wise God, he is speaking of God being wise in a singular sense, in a unique sense. And that's why the New King James says to God alone wise. It, it, it says a lot about what we mean. When we talk about this fifth reality about who God is, when we talk about the wisdom of God, to identify him as the God alone wise identifies wisdom as, 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 as a supreme quality about God and that God is alone in this, that God stands apart, that God has no rival. God in and of himself is singular, meaning, I mean, he's a triune God, but you know what I mean? He has no rival. There's no other like him. And therefore, his expression then of wisdom his, his, his wise works and acts, this reflection of his nature, stands alone. Now, again, this all makes sense, at least to me it does, in light of all that Paul has said. This, this is a natural, then, flow from everything that Paul has brought out, talking about the God who has strengthened us, who's done so according to the preaching of Jesus Christ, and all of this has been according to uh, the revelation of this mystery through the prophetic scriptures, how this includes then not just Jews but Gentiles. This goes to all the nations. This is the decree or commandment of God for obedience to the faith. So it's natural then that Paul would include this designation because it identifies all that God does as being uniquely and supremely wise. The wisdom of God. So here's what I want to do with the rest of our time. We're going to jump off of that phrase. And really, because I think there's a lot behind it. I think there's a lot underneath it, biblically, theologically. Because the, both Old and New Testament have a lot to say about wisdom. The, the word is used in some form hundreds of times, New and Old Testament. 
There's an entire genre of biblical literature called wisdom literature. And then there's an entire book, the book of Proverbs, that that is its own stated purpose, right? That there is a king uh, father, really is how he describes himself, translating then to his son wisdom, right? Try, trying to transfer to him wisdom. So this is a big deal in the Bible, talking about wisdom. But I think it's important that we unpack what I think are fundamental features of it. This will not say everything that could be said about wisdom. That would take me another four years. Just, just as some um, point of reference, by the way, there's a famous book that, that's old. It's an older book by a guy named Stephen Charnock. The name of the book is called The Attributes of God. This is a classic exposition of the attributes of God. It is not for the faint of heart because when he talks about the, just the wisdom of God, it's a hundred pages. So I put that in your mind so when we get done today, you could at least think, wow, I'm glad it didn't take a hundred pages, all right? Because it could. It could take a very long time. It takes a hundred pages to flesh out all that is meant by God's wisdom. We're not going to do that. Instead, we're only going to look at three more points, all right? We're going to do these. We are going to do this fairly expeditiously, but you've got blanks in your um, bulletin for this morning if you'd like to fill in the rest of this, because what I, what I want us to do is to flesh out a little more carefully, so what, what do we mean by this? When it says God alone is wise, when we're talking about wisdom, what does it have to do then with us? What about our wisdom? All right, so three truths about wisdom that I think are really important to understand. Number one... And this, by the way, does come straight from this text. This would be the straight implication. Wisdom belongs to God. Wisdom belongs to God. Again, when he says to God alone wise, or the only wise God, this is speaking of God possessing wisdom in a unique way. It undoubtedly means this, God owns it. God's in charge of it. Wisdom is, is, is a reflection of his own nature. Wisdom belongs to him. Again, it, it, is, it is his. It is his to possess. He operates in it. God alone is wise. Now, here's why this is a proper designation to say wisdom belongs to God. Because this means everything God does is wise. By default, everything, every act, every thought, every work, everything God does can be identified as wise. And what we mean by wise is that which is right, that which is true, that which is perfect, that which is best. To say that wisdom belongs to God, this is also a way of saying God cannot not be wise. I know that's, as we like to say, preachers love to say it's bad grammar but good theology and that would be the case in that statement, right? God cannot not be wise. There's never a time when God looks back on something that he's done or said and thought, what were you thinking? God's never looked back on his stuff and said, boy, that was foolish. What I did way back then, that's kind of a foolish way to do things. 
No, the, the, the nature of God's work is rightly identified as that which is wise because wisdom is a possession of God, belongs to God. It identifies his nature, his actions, everything about him is wise. This, by the way, is Paul's statement when he concludes the theological portion of the book of Romans. So turn back a couple of pages to Romans chapter 11. As Paul, this, by the way, is another type of benediction, and we would have studied this a long time ago. All right, I don't remember when I did my sermons in Romans 11, but I can tell you they were a long time ago. Uh, It would have been a while But it is a benediction similar here to the end of chapter 16. In fact, in a lot of ways, the end of verse of chapter 11 feels like a good ending. He's even going to end in, exact, in almost exactly the same way. He's going to end with the word amen. All right, So it seems like a good ending, but it's really just this, this climactic moment. Now that Paul has laid out all of this profound work of the gospel the nature of man's sin, and then the nature of God's righteousness and grace to provide faith, the way that in that then we are made right with God as Christ receives my unrighteousness and in return I receive His righteousness and how then I am no longer a slave to sin, I'm now now a slave to righteousness and then how in all of that God doesn't stop short in saving me. God's salvation does not come in stages. His salvation is complete. Though some of the promises are yet to be fulfilled, still the work is done. It is finished. God doesn't need to do anything else for me in order to bring the fulfillment of the gospel promises to me. So like Romans chapter 8, laying out for us this beautiful truth that in Christ there's now no condemnation. We stand as adopted sons and daughters of the living God. And, and, and to, to then know that God is doing this great work of, 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 of from the very beginning, those whom He foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. And, and then we get into chapters 9, 10, and 11, And these profound chapters about the nature of God's sovereignty and and human responsibility. And we tried our best to unpack all of that. And, And again, walking through all of this theology about some of the deepest, most profound truths about God's gospel. How else does Paul end? But verse 33 of chapter 11. Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Isn't it interesting that the way he decides to cap off the theological section of the book of Romans is with a statement to the wisdom of God. He could have put anything, right? He could have said, and there are other verses that say, oh, the depths and the riches of the love of God. There's other verses that say that. And that would be right. Oh, the depths and the riches of the of the grace of God, yes. But in this case, how does he cap it off? The depth and the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. And then he goes on to unpack that. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. 
Amen. So, so what other way then would Paul bring all of this discussion then in chapter 16 to an end, but to once again draw our attention to wisdom and draw our attention to what I think is this fundamental truth that the saving work of God is a reflection of a profound act of wisdom, knowledge. And he does something else here. He also then is saying, who am I to question it? Who am I to critique it? Uh, So again, consider this. Consider the way in which God has decided to save us from sin. You know, if you you go all the way back to the beginning, you go all the way back to what God then promised the serpent and Adam and Eve in the garden that of the seed of Eve will come the one who will crush the head of the serpent. And how does he do that? Well, he calls Noah, right? Then we have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We have the the covenant people of God. We have Moses. We have the law of God. We have Passover. We have the festivals. We have the prophetic scripture. In other words, we have all this preliminary work God does in the Old Testament to foreshadow, to promise the coming of a Messiah, the seed of Eve who would crush the head of the serpent. And then how does God decide to bring that seed into existence? How does the Son of God then become manifest? God, Son of God, the second person, fully God, fully man. What's God's plan? Oh, let's let's use a couple of nobodies and let's make it a virgin birth. The wisdom of God. Oh, and on top of that, He's then not going to do anything for 30 years. After 30 years, he's, gonna, he's then going for three years to then instruct 12 guys who don't seem like the brightest bulbs in the pack. He's going to lose one of them, all right? And then he's going to die horribly and brutally on a cross to be raised from the dead only to afterwards then entrust his mission to take the gospel to the ends of the earth with now 11 guys who haven't proved to be the most courageous, but he's going to do so by sending them his spirit. And when they are empowered by his spirit, then God will use then them and then the church and his been doing it for 2,000 years to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. But the plan's not over because then God intends at the end to send that same Son of God back visibly and powerfully to return so that all things that were broken in the garden can be reversed, can be restored to glory and splendor so Christ will reign. This is the wisdom of God in salvation. But let me ask you, if we were to form a committee of just the people who are here, would we have come up with that plan? I mean, just thinking about that even rehearsed, does that sound like a good plan? Can we see what else is on the table? But here's what this means. This plan of salvation was not just an okay plan that God decided out of a bunch of sticky notes he had up in heaven where he was, when, you know, when he'd have an idea about how to save, he'd jot it down, all right? And think, well, this may be good, well, this may be good, well, this may be good. He didn't decide then one day, well, you know what? Take the sticky note of Jesus off. Let's do this one. This one looks pretty good. I mean, I, I, I did all right with creating the world, but that blew up on me, all right? But, and then, I, you know, I tried to start over with Noah, but my goodness, that blew up on me again, all right? And then we had the whole Tower of Babel thing, and so that was a big mess. So I thought I'd start all over. And so, okay, let's try Abraham 
Isaac, and Jacob. All right, let's see how that works. But my goodness, they end up in Egypt. I know, I'll send Moses. Okay, great. So Moses then comes, brings them out. But boy, that doesn't end very well. All right, but eventually a generation does go in the promised land. But even then, they're a bunch of knuckleheads. All right, so they, they end up worshiping a bunch of other gods. Oh, wow, this is really blown up on me again. And so then in the intervening time, we've got Assyrians taking over, we've got Babylonians taking over, we've got Persians taking over, we've got Romans taking over. And then finally, God comes up with a good idea with Jesus. It's not how this works. This was not only a plan, it was not only a good plan, it was the best plan. It was the right plan. It, because you understand, God cannot do that which is not best. God can only do the best, right? I mean, we understand this. Why? Because wisdom belongs to him. God can only do that which is wise. And here's, here's in many ways what is the irony of this. And Paul fleshes this out in 1 Corinthians 1. I'd go back and read it if I were you. 18 through 31, where Paul then even un unpacks for us this idea. God has decided to put on display the foolishness of men by doing that which would save them, which seems foolish to them, but is actually the wisdom of God. Again, we see all of this and we think, wow, couldn't there have been a better way? No. No. Again, God doesn't look back on the thing and, and, and think, boy, I could have done that better. You do know God doesn't get better at being God. This is what I said last week. That God doesn't, doesn't think, you know, 6,000 years ago, I was just, you know, I was getting my feet underneath me. But boy, now I've really hit my stride as God. Last few years... But, but the, because if that were the case, by the way, what would we think of his God ability today? Right? Because from our perspective, it seems like things are pretty bad. I mean, maybe you don't think that. All right? Maybe you think everything's clicking along just the way that looks great. All right? But I don't know. I mean, to me, I look at some things and think, mm, wow, wow, some things look like they're going pretty badly. Yeah. Again, what, what do we have to do then at this point? We're, we're left with only one thing. We trust. We trust that he's wise. And that, and that doesn't mean he's really smart. I mean, he is. He's omniscient. All right? It doesn't mean he just makes really good decisions. He does. It means he's the embodiment of perfect wisdom, truth, righteousness, all things that are good and just. This, this by the way, is stated in some other verses. Job 12, 13, with God or wisdom and might. Notice the way that's stated, with God are these things. Again, that's language of possession. These are things that belong to him. He has counsel and understanding. Daniel 2.20, blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. And maybe one of the clearest expressions of this, Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. I think, by the way, this has been an appropriate place to camp for the amount of time we've done so this morning. Again, I know it's just two words, alone, wise. But I think it's just important for us to get into our minds what we mean when we describe God as wise. And I think a verse like this puts something to us with great clarity. And I think we could illustrate it this way. I want you to think about the smartest people who've done the smartest things and made the smartest comments throughout all of human history. All right? Got that? 
regardless of how you'd see that or I see that. Just, so just whoever you think that is. And I know some of you are thinking of me. All right, but other than that, all right? So, so think of the smartest people, saying the smartest things, doing the smartest things that you ever, 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 in all of human history. To God, it's like having a conversation with a toddler. And that, that's not to say that those toddlers aren't doing really good things and have smart things to say. Many of them do, right? There's been a lot of technology development, a lot of progression in a lot of areas and human living and flourishing and all of these things. But even the best, even the smartest, even the most articulate, even the most amazing things that we think, how did somebody come up with that? How did we get to where we are now? How is it possible that a computer went from being something that would have filled the gymnasium to being something that you hold in your pocket? It's like God getting down on his hands. Yeah, you're so cute, right? I mean, that's what it is. It's God having a conversation with the toddler. It's what we amount to. And that may even be, that may even be a, a little too positive. <laughs> this is the wisdom of God. Thoughts are high above ours. As high as the heavens are above the earth. Wisdom belongs to him. All right, number two. These next two will... Come quickly. Wisdom comes from God. So here's what this means. Since it belongs to him, since it's his possession, God could have kept it that way, but he did not. God in his grace has then bestowed this upon us. He's given us wisdom. He did it in a general way as everybody's made in the image of God. Right? So that means even the most pagan of people can sometimes do things that are a reflection of wisdom. Because God has bestowed this upon us. God has given to us wisdom. Now, of course, we know that that image of God is badly broken by sin. So then God then grants us wisdom as believers and God remaking us after the image of Christ. And so now as, as a gift of that salvation, we not only have the Word of God, we have the Spirit of God. And so because of that, we can walk in wisdom, right? God has, God has bestowed it. So it belongs to Him. And so wisdom is that which comes from God. He gives it to us as a gracious gift. Turn with me now to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. I want you to see this. And I could have put it on the screen, but it was going to be too many slides. All right, so we'll just turn to it. James chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 2 through 5. It's probably a set of verses you've heard before. James chapter 1. Beginning in verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials... Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Again, that is a precious promise, is it not? And like I told the, the, first, uh, the first service, you know, it's, it's a time in which I, I, I would gladly accept God being liberal, all right? For, for the most part, no, all right? We're not going to talk about God being a liberal because he's not. But when it comes to the giving of wisdom, yes, all right? God does that 
liberally. And, and what, does he, what does he say? Ask. Ask. Ask and he'll, he'll give. And when it says he'll give liberally, you know what that, what that implies to me? I don't know if it implies. I think it directly states, all right? What does that directly then state to us? That, that God, God's not doling it out like an M&M at a time? You give me one M&M at a time, that's just frustrating, right? Right? I mean, just a little bit here and there, breaking off a little corner of a chocolate bar. No, no, no. No, I want the whole thing. All right, I want the whole thing. That's right. So when I eat Ben and Jerry's, I'm going to eat the whole pint. I do. I do. I admit it. Okay? Four servings. That's what the back says. Four servings. Come on. Seriously? No. No. So when God gives, how does he give? How does he give his wisdom? He gives it liberally. Willingly. By the way, that's the only way it can happen. It has to be bestowed. It has to be given out. It has to be something that God grants to us because God owns it, belongs to him. He discharges it as he sees fit. But he in his grace has said, ask, ask and it will be given to you. So wisdom is something then that comes to us from God. And there's one final principle then. Wisdom then submits to God. Wisdom submits to God. So... I, I would then argue there's, there's this third important reality. It isn't just that, that God owns wisdom, that, the, that then God gives wisdom. What is the evidence that somebody has received it? I would argue it's obedience. I, I, I would suggest that the evidence that somebody is walking and living in the wisdom of God is that they are walking and living in obedience to God and His Word. And I'm, and I'm going to give you a verse. It's not in your notes. But I'll give you a verse that I think illustrates this. Makes it clear this is, this is the essence of wisdom, as far as we're concerned. It's the theme of the book of Proverbs. You'll know it. Proverbs 1.8. You'll know it. As soon as I start it. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Isn't it interesting? The fear of the, notice it doesn't say the fear of the Lord is the end of wisdom. He's not saying you, you've, you've reached a climactic point in your wisdom when you fear God. That's, that's the height of it. No, he's saying that's the beginning of it. That's where it starts. Wisdom begins when I first submit to Him who alone is wise. To Him who is wise. When I submit myself to Him, when I relate to God as, as He who is worthy of all worship and devotion, of He who is worthy of ultimate reverence, of He who is worthy of fear. In other words, this speaks to a spirit of humility, a willingness to say, God is God and I am not. God knows and I don't. God can and I can't. And then if I'm going to do this well, then it requires God as the owner of wisdom to grant wisdom that I might walk in wisdom. And that means then if I'm going to ask God for wisdom, that it begins with me saying, I know God, you alone are wise. I'm not. I require your divine intervention in order to manage the life that you've placed me in. So again, what this ultimately then admits, this does admit who God is, admits who I am, and it admits what my need is for God and His grace to grant me this kind of wisdom. So again, this is what we see here. And again, I know it's just two words, alone wise. But it's important that we recognize wisdom belongs to God, it comes from God, and it submits to God. So again, what should be our response to this? Our response should simply be 
trust. Because, because I'll tell you, not, not all of your theological I's get dotted, right? Not all of your theological T's get crossed. There's tension here in our theology. There, there can't, there, it can't help but be that way. It's not God's fault. It would be ours, right? We're, we're limited in our understanding and ability to perceive all of these grand things about God. And so, ultimately, I am brought to, to what I have called before the wall of Scripture, where, where, the, where Scripture reveals truth, I run up against it, and once I run up against where I can go no further, then what do I do? It's not, it's not, it's not in just some give up. It's a way of saying, all right, God has brought me to the point of my knowledge, and so at this point I say, God, I trust you. I trust your wisdom. This means I trust. I trust in how God is sovereignly bringing history to its fulfillment. Listen, let's, let's make this even clearer. This means I trust. I trust God is always acting in wisdom even when there's a pandemic. I trust God is always acting in wisdom regardless of how a presidential election may turn out. I trust God's always acting in wisdom when we have natural disasters, when we have personal health issues, job issues, family issues, when we have circumstances that are difficult, that, that, are, that are burdensome. I trust the wisdom of God. I may not always understand it, and quite frankly, I may be like David and have plenty of opportunity to lament, right? To ask God why. And that's fine. God is big enough to handle your why questions. Just know that sometimes His answer is because I'm God. And you will have to trust my wisdom. Of course, I think there would be then a couple of other responses to this. I think first, if you're here and you've never trusted in Christ as your Savior, this is where it would begin, trusting in the gospel. The gospel not is a really good way to get saved, but is the only way. It's not just really helpful. It's it. It's A or B. It's yes or no. It's it. It's no in between. There's no gray area here. If you've never confessed that you are a sinner, confess Jesus died on the cross, ask God to forgive you through that death and the resurrection of Christ. If you've never trusted in Him fully, and Him alone for the saving work that He's accomplished, then that's where you begin, trusting in Christ. But then as believers, I think then we have to trust in His Word. We have to trust that, yes, He is wise, and how He's doing things is wise. And then I think that then ends with we trust His commands. We trust that then God's instructions are right. We trust that His commands are not a burden. His commands are a blessing. We trust that if God has created this world, He's created it to work in such a way that it's best lived when lived in obedience to His principles. God's commands are not a burden to us. They are a blessing. Do we trust it? Do we trust Him? Do we trust His wisdom? I know these days can be hard, church. I understand but yet what are we left with? Because I do not want a God who cannot be trusted. I do not want a God who's pretty wise. I do not want a God who's got a good track record of making some pretty good decisions. Every now and then he blows it, but he's getting better at this God thing. That's not the God I want to serve. That sounds horrible. Nope, I'm going to have to trust. God is always and forever wise. Even if the circumstances seem something difficult and burdensome to me, but I trust him. Let's stand together and I'm going to pray. And after I pray, then we will sing.
as we continue to allow God by His Spirit to bring His Word to bear on our lives. Father God, we do bow before You. Once again, grateful for Your Word, grateful for the gathering of Your people, grateful that You are an all-wise God, that You alone are wise. We thank You, God, that in that wisdom You do grant that to us. And so now may we then submit ourselves to You as we live in the fear of the Lord, living in the fullness then of the Gospel, so that all that we do would be to Your glory. Bring Your Word to bear on our lives that we might live in faith to You. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.